The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 70 to the chief musician, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Okay, we are now in Deuteronomy 25. This is verses 1 through 10, and this is entitled, A Brother in Israel. If there is a dispute between men, and they come to court that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him, and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go in to her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed." Doug, who does our weekly illustration, got it great. He got a picture of a woman bowing down, taking the sandal off of a guy and spitting right in his face. It's a great illustration. Make sure you check it out. When I started typing this sermon on Monday morning, I had the same thought that I have every Monday. How am I ever going to get anything out of this passage that will be edifying to the church? The first verses seem very lawish, and other than knowing that they are directly or indirectly referenced in the New Testament, I wasn't sure how doctrinally edifying they would be for you. The last six verses are obviously typologically anticipating something, but I had no idea what. Eight plus hours later, I still had no idea. I had to sit and really try to think things through. Unfortunately, as happens from time to time, the phone rang right on Monday when I wish people would leave me alone, and I lost 20 or 30 minutes of thought. It was getting time to walk the dogs, and so I did that. 
In coming in, I got back to thinking and eventually developed what I feel these verses are telling us. It is a lesson said many times already in various ways, and that should not be surprising. Paul explains this lesson many times and in various ways as well. And yet, people still do not get it. They keep trying to merit God's favor apart from what he has done in Christ. I bet you I got 10 emails on the subject of the Sabbath or of this or that, reinserting the law or doing this or that this week alone. Many, many such emails. What a sad place to be. God does the work. God offers the reconciliation, and we keep trying to do better than what he has done. Indeed, what a sad place to be. Our text verse comes from Galatians chapter 2. It is verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. How much clearer could he get? Along with some thoughts about the law and grace, a couple other rather incredible doctrines are to be seen in our 10 verses today. Maybe some of you, hopefully all of you, know what imputation means. There is another similar but lesser known subject that we will mention today as well. That is impartation. Do you know the difference between imputation and impartation? Is the difference that substantial? If so, how and why? Trust me on this. People will write volumes about what they believe Paul is referring to at times in his writing. Just a little bit off in one's analysis, and all of a sudden you are heading down the completely wrong theological path. When that happens, everything else goes askew as well. We won't go into any great detail on this, but it is good to be aware of the difference, so pay heed. The Bible is a wonderful treasure filled with the most precious of doctrines for the faithful student, so pick it up and read it. Learn to love this beautiful masterpiece of God's wisdom. Great, great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to this precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is 40 blows he may give him. It's verses one through four. Verse one, if there is a dispute between men, the New King James Version rightly places this first verse as conditional. Verse 1 is the condition, while verse 2 is the concluding matter based on the condition. In other words, if this, then this. The word riv, or dispute, comes from a root signifying to toss, as in grappling. Two people are contending or quarreling over a matter as people do. If such is the case and no remedy has been found, then the matter is elevated. Verse 1 continues, and they come to court. Venigesu el hamishpat, and they come unto the judgment. The idea here is that of seeking out a set and recognized tribunal for a decision. This would be first at the gates of the city where such matters were to be judged. Wherever the case ultimately is decided, though, the point is that there is a disagreement. Either both they think are right, or one knows that he is wrong, but he thinks he can effectively win the case. As in any such matter, to know that you are wrong, and to know that you could not win such a case, it would be pointless to go to the judges. Jesus speaks of such a situation in Matthew 5. He says there, agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him. 
lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Such is not the case here. Neither side will budge, and so the matter is taken to the judgment to be settled. This is so, verse 1 continues, that the judges may judge them. U shefatim, and they have judged. The condition of the first verse continues. The dispute was taken to the judges, and when the judgment has been rendered upon them by the judges. When this occurs, verse 1 continues, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. The translation is correct. The word ha-tzadik, or the righteous, and the word ha-rasha, or the wicked, are terms referring to the state of the individuals in relation to the case. One is just in his case, while the other is not. Charles Ellicott is thus right when he says, it should be noticed that justify here is used forensically, not meaning to make righteous, but to treat as righteous. It is what the Lord said in Exodus 23 concerning judgment. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. This may be more clear when seen in the Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 17, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. It is obvious from Solomon's words that he is speaking of treating a wicked man as righteous. Thus, it cannot mean making righteous, even if the person who is justified deludes himself into believing this. This is an important point for us to consider. In Christ, we are justified before God. We are treated as righteous. But that does not mean that we are now righteous in and of ourselves even if the arrogant Christian acts as if he is. Adam Clark then rightly evaluates this in relation to Paul's words in his epistles. He says, the word sadak is used here precisely in the same sense in which St. Paul sometimes uses the corresponding word dikai'a'o, to show to be righteous, declare righteous, not to justify or make just, but to acquit, declare innocent, to remit punishment, or give reasons why such one should not be punished, using the same word with St. Paul when he speaks of a sinner's justification. For example, his acquittance from blame and punishment because of the death of Christ in his stead. This highlights the difference between imputation and impartation. To be imputed righteousness means to ascribe as righteous. To be imparted righteousness means to bestow the quality of righteousness. The difference is worlds apart for the believer. We are treated, we are imputed as righteous by God because of what Christ has done. We are not righteous imparted in and of ourselves now because of Christ. Hence, we cannot look down on others because of our own righteousness. We can only pity them in relation to Christ and strive to bring them to what we have now been granted. In such a case, as is being evaluated, whoever is decided in favor of the case is righteous, while the one who lost the decision is unrighteous in a legal, not necessarily a moral sense. Such is the case with humanity before God. 
When a decision is made for those in Christ, we are deemed legally righteous. When we are not in Christ, we are legally unrighteous. Does everybody see the difference? Imputation, Christ died for me. I am righteous because of Christ. Impartation would say Christ died for me and he has made me righteous in and of myself. I'm sorry. It's only because of Christ's righteousness that I am righteous. Only because of that. As for the one not justified, in this case, in Israel, verse 2, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the Hebrew bears an idiom, and it shall be if son of beating the wicked. In other words, it is as if he is a son deserving of being beaten. In such a case, it shall be, verse 2 continues, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence. The Hebrew reads lefanav, to his face, and thus before the face of the judge. The GNT incorrectly translates this as, if the guilty one is sentenced to be beaten, the judge is to make him lie face downward and have him whipped. In other words, they take the words to his face as meaning with his face to the ground. That is not the intent, even if that is what the man does. The words to his face mean before him or in his presence. The judge was to personally watch over the beating to ensure that it was carried out as determined. Otherwise, he could be overbeaten, mistreated in how the beating was given, not punished enough, and so on. With it conducted before him, and because he was the one who made the judgment, it would be, verse 2 continues, according to his guilt. According to sufficiency, his wickedness. In other words, enough to punish, but no more and no less. One might say, exactly as he deserves. Verse 2 continues, with a certain number of blows. Bemispar, in number. This is the sufficiency of the previous clause. The number is to be in accord with his wrongdoing. However, the judge was to be limited in how much he determined what in number could be. Verse 3, 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these. The Hebrew is very precise, saying 40 blows he may give him. No, he add lest he add to beat him above these blows great. In other words, anything beyond 40 would be considered too great a punishment for any offense. It obviously became an accepted rule in Israel to take away one blow as the maximum penalty in order to ensure the law was never, ever violated. In other words, if the maximum of 40 was the sentence and the punisher miscounted, he would violate the law. Hence, the maximum number of 39 was set to avoid this ever occurring. Although this precept is not explicitly stated in Scripture, it is to be inferred from Paul's words of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, where he says, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times 39, I did it in my head a, a couple weeks, a couple days ago, and it's like 145 times he got beaten by his own people. Anyway, just a little squiggle for your brains, nothing important. With this stated, and with the precept understood from the New Testament, we find hints of the work of Jesus Christ. Forty, according to Bollinger, is the number associated with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. It is the product of five, which is grace, and eight, 
and points to the action of grace. Five, leading to and ending in revival and renewal, the number eight. This is obviously the case with the man that is being punished. He is chastised. The maximum number set by the law is grace, and it is intended to lead to his renewal within the community for justice served. The removal of one blow would then be the maximum punishment leading to renewal. And this is what the Bible reveals concerning the coming of Christ. The body of law, the Old Testament, is 39 books. That leads to the 40th book where Christ is introduced. The law, with its provisions for reconciliation to God, is grace leading to revival and renewal in Christ. Thus, the 39 books of the Old Testament, meaning the law, are as blows to Christ in his fulfillment of them. God gave him that and no more to complete his work. If one adds in the 40th book, which first reveals his completion of them, then he has perfectly fulfilled the period of probation, trial, and chastisement. It is a beautiful picture of God's grace leading to and ending in revival and renewal. As far as the law itself for the disobedient man, any more than what the law prescribes would result in something quite negative. Verse 3 continues, And your brother be humiliated in your sight. And dishonored your brother in your eyes. The idea of calling him a brother here is that of shared humanity. This is a person, and to beat him beyond a set measure would be comparable to treating him like an animal. It was not to be so condoned. Before going on, it needs to be noted that this precept of the law is not the punishment given to Christ during his passion. You'll often hear pastors stand up and say, this was the punishment that Christ received 40 minus 1. I'm sorry, that is incorrect analysis of what is going on. I just gave you the correct analysis. 39 books of the Old Testament are laid upon Christ as his weight, and then we come into the renewal. The scourging that he received was at the hands of the Romans, who were not bound to the precepts of this law. So if you hear that in a sermon, chuck it out of your memory. He would have been beaten relentlessly by them before he was led to the cross. So, in a sense, Christ took much more of the humiliation spoken of here for his people than God would ever have allowed for them under their law. What God was willing to do for us in Christ Jesus goes far, far beyond that. Thank God for Jesus Christ. And more, it must be remembered when looking at the typology that Christ did no wrong. The wicked one in this passage is us, and yet Christ is the one who took the blows on our behalf our guilt, his punishment. With that, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Thank God for Jesus Christ. With this matter now complete, Moses turns to a new precept. Verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Lo tachsom sor be disho. No, you shall muzzle ox in his treading. Two new words are found here. Hasam to stop up or muzzle, and dush, meaning to tread or thresh. A question arises as to why this is stated here at all. 
A friend of mine sent me an analysis of this verse quite some time ago from Justin Taylor of the Gospel Coalition. During the CG report, I told you that we had an honorable person in the U.S. military, a Navy SEAL, retire recently. This is him. He and I will share things back and forth, and he's very good about finding pictures of Christ in things. Anyway, he sent me this, and we'll talk about it. I saved that until arriving here. Instead of just, you know, making my own analysis, I thought I'm going to wait because it's only a couple years away. So the title was, Do Not Muzzle the Ox, Does Paul Quote Moses Out of Context? The reason this is an important matter to settle is because Paul does, in fact, quote this verse two times. In his quoting, he says, first from 1 Corinthians 9, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And then in 1 Timothy 5, he quotes it again. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul says that this was written for our sakes. If this is so, then as the analysis notes, it brings up all kinds of questions. They also give examples. Is Paul saying that Moses never meant this to be applied to literal oxen? Or... Is he merely referring to the ultimate intention of the passage? Or is he focusing on contemporary application rather than original meaning? Or is he quoting this verse out of context? This is the Gospel Coalition trying to get you to think the thing through. Based on this, and in order to show that the law is still to be taken literally, and yet also to justify that Paul is right as well, Mr. Taylor goes into lengthy analysis of showing that this must be speaking of a borrower of an ox. To simplify the entire article, my friend brought it down to its basics and then he paraphrased the intent, saying, in the case of an owned ox, it would be in the interest of the owner to have the ox eat some of the grain as it's threshing the floor so that the ox stays healthy and fed. But in the case of a borrowed ox, the borrower might not care for the ox as much and wants to have maximum grain yield. So he might put a muzzle on the ox so that it does not eat his grain. But in such a case, the ox might get weaker and will not be in a good condition. But the borrower wouldn't care because it's not his ox. As my friend who sent me this neither agreed nor disagreed with the analysis, but simply sent it on, I am sure that I will not offend him by disagreeing with this analysis. The logic from that analysis is that all of the surrounding verses deal with human rights. And as this suddenly introduces the care of an ox, it doesn't fit. Therefore, Paul must be right. As he is, then it must be speaking of the rights of the owner of the ox, and hence the ox is owned by another. As such, the passage is still referring to human rights, meaning taking care of the owner's property.
That's their logic. I disagree. And that does not logically follow. And if it was the case, Moses would have identified the ox as borrowed, just as the law speaks of things like this elsewhere, such as in Exodus 22. It says, and if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. He was very explicit about it being borrowed in that case. If one has to infer a precept in the law of Moses in this manner, then the law is not clear. But clarity of the law is the absolute intent for the people. We have seen that time and time and time again. Things are both repeated and restated to ensure there is nothing vague or ambiguous in the law. Having said that, the precept is set. It is for the protection of the ox, and yet it is still a precept dealing with human rights, just not the rights of an owner of an ox that the law never refers to. Rather, the reason it is placed here is because it adds importance to the law just stated in the previous verse. If an ox is to be tended to, even though it is just an ox, how much more should a man not be degraded as if he were an animal by beating him beyond what is decent? Understanding that, and then understanding the context of Paul's words, both the law as written and what Paul says in the epistles come into clarity of focus. Paul takes an actual verse about an ox, a matter of law, but which is placed carefully after a passage about human dignity, and he then says that it is not the ox that God is concerned about, which is true. It is the state of the brother of the previous verse that he cares about. Paul then elevates the precept of the ox to that of human dignity in his epistles, exactly as the passage about the ox intends. Does anybody disagree with that? Get out of this place. Okay. <laughs> Nobody disagreed. You shall beat him with 40 blows and no more. And it is sufficient to the offense at hand. Any more and everyone knows for sure he will be dishonored more than I had planned. And you have done right by making it 40 minus 1. It is proper to not go beyond that. So I say, there are 39 blows laid upon my son. 39 books filled with debt that he would pay. And in the 40th, there is now fellowship so sweet. The grace leading to revival and renewal is found. In him, all that was necessary is now complete. In him, restoration with me is found. Our second thought today, to raise up a name to his brother. It's verses 5 through 10. Verse 5, if brothers dwell together. The stipulation here does not necessarily mean in the same house. This is evidenced from the same use of the term in Genesis 13.6 and 36.7, where it refers to dwelling together in the same land. The matter is one of what is reasonable concerning proximity. As such is the case, verse 5 continues, and one of them dies and has no son. The translation is literally correct, son. But the passage is cited in the New Testament, and there it refers to offspring. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, 
There were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. The son is the one to carry on the name of the father. But a provision was made in Numbers 27, verses 1 through 11, for it to continue through a daughter as well, in certain circumstances. Regardless of this, though, it is generally the son that carries the name of the father. For now, the man died having no offspring. Therefore, verse 5 continues, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. The word zur, or stranger, means anyone who is another. In other words, the brother has already been identified in the first clause, and thus anyone else is another. The focus is on this brother and the widow of his brother. In this case, verse 5 continues, her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife. Here is a new noun, yavam, meaning a husband's brother. It is only to be found here and in verse 7. The verb form, yavam, was seen in Genesis 38, verse 8, and it is then only seen here again in Scripture, in the next clause and in verse 7. This was a cultural precept as carefully detailed in Genesis 38, and which is now being written into the Mosaic Code. The Code is silent on whether this brother is already married or not, and so reading into it that he must be single is therefore not a reliable thought. It simply states, as a point of law, that a brother in such a matter is to perform this function. Although there may be an exception, such as found in Ruth concerning a near kinsman, it appears that the wording here refers to an actual brother in this passage. No matter what, it next says, verse 5 continues, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. In this, there is the requirement that such a brother is to perform the duty the yavam, the verb, of a husband's brother. This is with the explicit intent of giving her a child. As this same verb was used in Genesis 38, it shows that the precept was already a custom in Israel, but it is now being codified into the law to ensure that it would continue. If you don't understand what's going on in this passage, go back and watch that sermon. It is amazing. I'm telling you, when I was going through Genesis, I got to Genesis 23, and I started to really realize how special Genesis was. And when I got to Genesis 38, I knew how special Genesis was. It is a great book. Genesis 38 is a marvelous passage of what God is doing in redemptive history. For now, the purpose of this rite is next stated. Verse 6, And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother. The Hebrew reads that the firstborn son, Yakum al-Shem Achiv Hamet, shall rise over name brother the dead. The verse says nothing of a female child. It is certainly referring to a firstborn son who will rise to be over the name of the father who had died, thus being in charge of or over his inheritance. The same general phrase is used in Ruth 4.10 saying, La Hakim Shem Hamet al Nahalato to raise name the dead over his inheritance. All of this is so, verse 6 continues, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is the purpose of the rite, the perpetuation of the name of the dead. Thus, it is the genealogical record that is being highlighted. 
The estate of the dead would obviously be involved, but it is the name that is given first consideration. Despite this being a precept of law, Moses does not make it mandatory. On the other hand, he does make the consequences for not following through with it repugnant enough so that a person in such a position would carefully consider the repercussions. Verse 7, but if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, here's another new word, yebemet, meaning a sister-in-law. It will be seen three times in this passage and only twice more in Ruth 1.5. As can be seen, the law clearly makes this a voluntary action. He can turn down the duty he is called to according to the law. The brother has no delight to take her as his wife. The word used, chafetz, means to be pleasing or to delight in. He is not so inclined to fulfill this law. If such is the case, verse 7 continues, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders. It is the place of judgment. She will argue for a judgment against him because he is unwilling to perform the duty as directed by law. There at the gate, she will come to the elders, verse 7 going on, and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. In this, she uses both the noun and the verb form of the word yavam. Yavami, my husband's brother, will not yavami perform the brother-in-law's duty. In other words, there is a responsibility attached to who he is in relation to the dead. The reason why he won't fulfill the duty is irrelevant. He may not like her. He may not want the child she bears to have his brother's name or whatever. This is similar to what Judah's son Onan did in Genesis 38, but not the same. He did take his brother's wife, but he didn't allow his seed to pass on to her. The proposition set forth here is that he simply will not take her as his wife. She wants this, but he refuses it. And she has a right to this, even if it cannot be forced. As such, verse 8, then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. The law is written. The culturally accepted norm has been codified into the law. And the terminology given to describe him in this fashion lays weight on the matter that this is his obligation, even if he can turn it down. This is what they convey to him, asking him to be reasonable in the matter. Verse 8 continues, but if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, he uses the same word as was just described of him, chafetz. He does not delight to take her. In refusing the taking of her, he is refusing to take delight in the law which instructs him to do this thing. As such, the law now gives her a right to humiliate him. I see somebody smiling there. I think she's got what's going on. Verse 9 then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders. The man has been counseled by the elders. He still refuses to agree to accept the responsibility of the custom, and thus he has disgraced both his brother and her. Therefore, she is given the right to bring disgrace upon him for failing to accept his responsibility. In this, she is to, verse 9 continues, remove his sandal from his foot. The sandal is a symbol of authority over the place where it rests. This is seen, for example, in Psalm 60, where David claims authority over Edom. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. In the casting of his shoe, it is the same word as translated sandal here. David was demonstrating that he delighted in taking possession over Edom. In Ruth, 
the near kinsman handed his shoe to Boaz as a resignation of the right to take possession of Elimelech's estate. However, here the woman is given the right to forcibly take off his shoe, demonstrating first that her hand now has the power over his right. Secondly, it is a contemptible way of saying that he no longer has any claim to or right in the matter henceforth. And more, to be unshod is a sign of a miserable and shameful existence. This is seen several times elsewhere. We'll start in Isaiah 20. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod. What's that? Charlie's unshod. Oh, she's talking about about me being barefoot. Okay, we'll get back to the... uh, Bible here. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, So the king of Assyria led away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And then from 2 Samuel 15, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Just so you know, in America, being barefoot is... A good thing? (laughs) Along with this degrading act, she will, verse 9 continues, spit in his face. It is great how Doug painted his painting. The guy's hand is in the way. You see the ends of the fingers. It looks like five bubbles, and he's going like this, and the spit's going all over him. Great, great illustration. Hey, that's the effect that we need. This is what's going on here. Okay. The word is yarak, to spit. This is the third and last use. It was used twice in Numbers 12, 14, where it is clearly recognized as a sign of derision. It says there, then the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit, spitting had spit, it says in the Hebrew, in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. Due to his unwillingness to perform his duty, he would thus be degraded before the elders by a woman. Along with that is one more note of unworthiness. Verse 9 continues, And answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. The actions speak for themselves. But after performing them, she then has the right to make him a comparative form of execration. In essence, what I have done to him is what any person unwilling to perform this duty deserves. Upon completion of this, the man would never be released from the shame of that act. As it says, verse 10 finishes with, and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. And shall be called his name in Israel, house him who had removed the sandal. The word Shemo or his name is explained by the words, the house of him. In other words, his house and his legacy are together one of disgrace. It is both a symbol of his disgrace and it is also a continuous reminder of it. The idea is, because he would not build up his brother's house, his house is one of disgrace. 
think of the house of David. We think of the house of David going on all the way down to the time of Christ. He is the house of disgrace. It's the thought of the lineage of the name upon the person. Everybody got that? Okay. It is your job and your duty to perform this law. Without it, there will be no heir for the name of your brother. Don't shirk your responsibility. Don't have such a flaw. Don't pass on what you should do to another. If you are counseled to perform as is expected of you, and if you will not, your authority, you will lose. Do that which is your responsibility to do. But you also know that you can refuse. What woman would ever want something of you when you would fail to act as you are told? By the woman, you will be rejected, so she will do. Any integrity of yours will be forever sold. Our third thought today is the unwilling brother. The precept here predates the law of Moses. A brother was to step in and perform the duty of the Yavam, the brother-in-law. What we have here is a short review of the inability of the law of Moses to bring forth children. Man, once connected to God, is the dead husband, typified by Adam. The woman represents humanity. A son in this would indicate a spiritual reconnection to God. Adam, the man who was once spiritually alive, died and left her no such children. Even prior to the law, the precept of the Yavam was already seen. The purpose of Genesis 38 was to set that as a precedent. The story there is one which anticipates the restoration of this spiritual connection to God. That is presented in a manner as clearly as it could be, as was shown in that particular sermon. As this is so, life under the law of Moses is typologically given as this brother. It is ostensibly available to give children to the woman as a yavam or a brother-in-law. As it says in Leviticus 18, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the law could bring life. Everybody got that? However, being under law does not delight in the woman and is in fact a state that is enmity with her. Paul states that explicitly in Ephesians chapter 2. He says there, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. In this case, life under law typologically will not perform the duty to give the woman a son. Hence, she performs the right of disgracing him and stripping him of any authority to ever have right to her again. However, Christ is of the woman, meaning humanity, and of him it says in the law itself, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight, that word, chafetz, to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Because life under the law would not perform the duty as is evidenced in the 1400 plus years of it bringing no person to restoration with God, Christ came to do it. He delighted to do the will of God and he performs what life under the law was unwilling to perform. In this, he, as a member of humanity, took away the authority of the law and brought it to its end. Thus, life under the law is the house of him who had his sandal removed. 
This is certainly indicated in Paul's words to those at Corinth, saying, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 45. God in Christ is the nearer brother who could and who did give a son, his firstborn, to the barren woman. From there, life is restored to any who come to him. The lesson, there are no born-again children in humanity through life under the law. Not before, nor will there ever be. Only in Christ is there a delight in bringing children to God through humanity. In this son then comes a new family, among whom Christ Jesus is the firstborn. It is a beautiful passage found in the law that conveys to us the insufficiency of the law apart from Christ to do what it was given for. That thought is perfectly expressed by Paul in Romans 3. It says there, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The law itself witnesses to what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. Righteousness is now imputed to those who simply reach out to him, to God through him, by faith, and accept what he has done. If you have friends or family stuck in some law-observant church, keep pecking away at them. Their time is short, and they have an infinitely high hill to climb going that route. They won't make it. For anyone listening today, I ask you to trust in Christ to rest in Christ, and put away your futile attempts at pleasing God through any other avenue except Jesus Christ. He is the answer to the problem that separates us from God. And surprisingly, the law itself testifies to that fact. Thank God for Jesus Christ. I hope you got the picture today. If not, go back and read this 15 or 20 times and you'll get it. Watch the sermon watch my body motions or something, maybe you'll clue into something, whatever. The point is that the law is insufficient to save anybody. No person can be saved by the law. Christ fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean he was saved by the law. He embodies the law. He didn't have sin. He didn't need to be saved by anything, okay? He fulfilled the law, and we are imputed. Everybody remember that word? Imputed his righteousness. We are deemed as righteous before God. We are not imparted his righteousness, meaning that we are now righteous in and of ourselves. I'm sorry, I fail my God every single day of my life and twice on Saturday, okay? This is the way it is. We are imputed his righteousness, and that means that we will never, ever lose what God has given us. I feel so bad for people that think that they are somehow imparted God's righteousness, and then they sin and they've lost that, or they think some other doctrine which tells them that they can lose what God has given them. That is not possible. You are in Christ, you are saved by the blood of Christ, and you are not imputed sin because you were imputed his righteousness. What kind of a conflict would that cause in Christ? My goodness. So what I would ask you to do today is very simple. Understand that you're a sinner. Understand that Christ died for your sins. Understand that he died and was buried, proving that he was dead, and understanding that he came out of the grave, proving that he had no sin, and thus he is God. This is what I would ask you to simply think through and do today. You don't know when you're going to die. It could be today. It could be from me boring you to death with more comments. But you are going to die and you are going to face God. I hope that you will face him in Christ. 
That's what I would hope. And this is just one more example of that for us today. Please call on Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God through this precious thing that he has done through his own son. Our closing verse comes from Romans 3. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Just yesterday, driving to and from missions, I listened to the entire book of Romans. What a blessing to listen to the book of Romans and think on the things of God. Wow, I listened to some of Acts too that got finished up and into Romans. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. It doesn't take that long to go through the whole book and the the uh, one that I have is Word of Promise. It's Stacy Keach who reads Paul's writings. Man, that guy has got a great voice for reading Paul's writings. Wonderful. All right, next week is Deuteronomy 25, 11 through 19. Yes, he is saved. I know he went through all the cocaine years and all that. Uh-huh. Stacy Keach is a saved believer. Deuteronomy 25, 11 through 19. Use your brain cells. Be sure they are set. It is entitled, You Shall Not Forget. That'll be our 72nd Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. He will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Okay. I got a question for you. I would think that somebody would get this because I have said this in at least 10,972 Bible studies and in probably 800 sermons. 73, that's right, thank you. Okay, what, and this is because it's mentioned several times in this sermon, either explicitly or implicitly, what is the purpose of a sign in the Bible? to point to what is coming. A wonder is the thing itself. God opens the Red Sea. That is it. That's a marvel. It's a wonder. A sign is something that points to something else. I've had two people in the past 24 hours email me and tell me that I'm supposed to be observing the Sabbath because it is a sign to the covenant people. The sign is Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4.3, now we who believe do enter that rest. This is a problem. People think that they're earning God's favor by doing these things. The sign anticipates the person. And in order to explain that very clearly, I told them that circumcision is a sign. sign. And guess what? Guess what? Yeah, it's, it's all over the place. But the thing is about the sign of circumcision is that when a Jew is circumcised, he stands up and he says, this is the sign of my righteousness. Absolutely not. They think that they are righteous because they have the sign. The sign points to something else. He is my righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Yehovah Tzikenu. The sign anticipates something else. And if you think that you're pleasing God by being circumcised, go read Galatians. You are a debtor to the whole law, folks. And if you think you're pleasing God by observing a Sabbath day, you are a debtor to the whole law, folks. Trust in Christ, rest in Christ, and put away your futile attempts at pleasing God through any other avenue except Jesus Christ. Why do you think I say the same thing at the end of every sermon? It's because we're dull. I I mean, we're dull. The Bible calls us dull, too. I mean, it's not like I'm saying anything. It's talking to me, mostly. I admit that. But Wow. Does everybody get how important theology actually is? Wonderful stuff.
Thank God. Who said that anyway? Ethan did. Ethan, you get to drive this Maserati home. Oh, oh, Jim. I'm sorry, Jim. Here's your Maserati. I'm going to get it all ready for you. And zoom. Whoops. He wants a can of raviolis. Oh, raviolis. Okay, I'll do that for you. Here, that is for you guys. Uh, Don returned that to me. And so that is, I think, Shannon, are you? Sure. Okay. Anyway, he drove all the way out here just to get that book to you. He's such a, I, I'm so sorry what happened to him this past summer. So sad. Okay, this is entitled A Brother in Israel. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and the wicked they condemn, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten that the judge will cause him to lie down, ground-facing nose, and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this something not right and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. How does this law fit with the other laws? Can I ask again? If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and he has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go in to her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, so shall it be. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name, as to you I tell, of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gates to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother to this very day. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, so he does convey, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer, and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, so he shall be reproved, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father. We do thank you for the wonderful lessons you keep giving us in your word. How precious is your word, how wonderful it is, and how glorious it is that it tells us about Jesus. How marvelous, Lord, that you have done these things in the stream of human existence and confirmed it before in your word and confirmed it after in the epistles telling about what happened. We have all we need to know to know you, to understand what you want and what you expect of us, and to follow you and to be faithful servants of yours. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done in this word and in your own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Oh, before I push this, I had something on my mind. I was going to make it next week's question, but I just don't want to wait that long. Okay. Paul speaks about a remnant being saved in the book of Romans at all times. Right? Let me read it to you so you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I, I'm going to make a point here. It just dawned on me. I've never heard anybody make this 
argument before, but it's a great argument. So here we go. Hang on one second here. Um, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, he's speaking to the church during the church age. Everybody got that? At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace, speaking of the people of Israel. Does everybody got that? Does everybody understand? There's always, and there has been, and there always will be a remnant of Israel that is saved by grace. Does everybody understand that? Here is my thought, and it completely defeats the argument of replacement theology. What does a remnant imply? A part left of what? The whole. The whole. Israel has not been replaced by the church. Does everybody understand that the people in Israel are Israel? If there's a remnant of those people, it means that the whole is Israel. There's only a remnant of believers, but people that deny that Israel has a part and a purpose in God's redemptive history, that they have been replaced by the church, are completely wrong. I mean, it's obvious from 10,000 sermons we've done, but that's just one more proof. If anybody ever tells you the church has replaced Israel, then say, then who are the remnant? 